Good morning and welcome to the Dean's class. Uh, we've taken uh, some time off of Ephesians and very glad that Mark Genelette was able to sub in and pray that what he was teaching was edifying to you. I know that it was for me while I was away in South Carolina. It was a bit of a busman's holiday, but nonetheless, very glad uh, to have had a change of scenery and certainly have been praying for you and very glad to get back into Ephesians this morning. And we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, and we are going to look a little bit at the entire chapter because I want to go back in case some of you have forgotten what we were talking about. But really, we're looking at verses 13 through 16 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, and with your Bibles open to page 978, you will find those verses. And before I read those verses, let's have a word of prayer and we're going to backtrack a little bit and see what Paul has said up to this point. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it goes out and accomplishes that for which it's purposed and does not return void. And we pray that you would send your spirit even now to speak through your word uh, that we might grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ and even attain his own stature on that great and wonderful day of our redemption in its wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul has been spending a great deal of time talking about three principles in Ephesians chapter 4. The first principle is one of unity. Paul talks about the importance of the unity of the church, that it's a unity that has been given, it's a gift, and we also see that it's something that we ought to strive for, and Paul admonishes people that, and says that if you want unity in the life of your family, in the life of your church, even in the life of your community, which may or may not be Christian, you need to model that for yourself. This morning when I was putting on uh, my clothes, it's the first time in a long time since I've worn a tie, and so I thought it providential that I was reading a column from the Financial Times that asked the question, is the suit and tie dead? When we come back to any sort of normalcy, will people still wear suits and ties? Now I'll admit that there's a great part of me that wants that to be so, that we come back to uh, suits and ties in their appropriate context. Uh, but how would it be that we would get other people to wear suits and ties, especially if they've grown used to wearing leisure wear? Even Seville Row was beginning to sell hooded sweatshirts and t-shirts and the like uh, during this time of COVID in order to meet the needs of the market at this time. Well, the answer is, if you want other people to wear suits and ties, you wear a suit and tie yourself. And your presence and your modeling that is going to affect others. It may not make them wear a suit and tie, but it will certainly make them dress up if they decide to come to church or to your office place in active wear. And Paul is saying the same thing. The principle is true of unity. If you want to see unity, you have to model it yourself. If there's disunity, you may want to first take a look at yourself and ask the question, am I modeling unity? Am I striving for it? Am I working for it in the life of this congregation? And then the next week, we talked about the principle of work. Paul spends time talking about the gifts that God has given his church and how they're to be put to use and why they are to be put to use in the life 
of the church. And finally, this morning, we come to Paul's lifelong concern for maturity, that we would grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as I said in our last time together, I want to answer the question, what does it mean to grow up in the Lord? What does it mean to mature in Christ? Because the Ephesian church that he's writing to is one in turmoil. It's a gifted and great church, uh, but that's the problem with gifted and great churches is when people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul describes them here, they're like little children. And it's very exciting, but what happens when you have a lot of little children on your hands? If you've ever taken any time to visit a nursery or you yourself have little children running about your house, whether that be children or grandchildren or children of neighbors, uh, it's a mess. Uh, it is, it's destructive. Uh, it's, I, could re- I could tell you all of these stories about everything that happened to me and my family because of the interaction between young children and my family with some of their friends. The things that were destroyed, the things that were an- completely annihilated, the fights that broke out, well, that's the result of being a child. And we shouldn't expect anything different when it comes to the Christian faith. If you are simply a child in the Christian faith, as exciting as the new birth is, you should expect conflict. You should expect uh, a sense of selfishness from time to time. You should expect uh, great uh, zeal. And yet that great zeal marked with an even greater degree of foolishness. Because that's what children are like. And Paul says that there's no difference in God's church, especially in the church in Ephesus. One commentator said that the problem that Ephesus faces is a problem of life, not of death. You see, in a live church faces these problems that Ephesus is dealing with, being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you want the classic case of this, go read 1 Corinthians. There is an incredibly gifted church that is in a complete mess because it is an alive church. A dead church has dead problems. I was talking to a friend who's the rector of a church uh, in another diocese, and he was saying how they had spent one hour talking about whether or not they were going to replace filament light bulbs with uh, a, uh, what are those things called? Chris, you're behind the camera. What are those things called? The more permanent ones. I don't know, whatever they, whatever it was, they spent an hour talking about it. Well, I had to tell my friend, that's a dead church problem. If those are the greatest problems that you face, whether to go to a more energy-efficient light bulb rather than to use a filament light bulb, that's a dead church problem. And as discouraging as it may be, be encouraged that if you're dealing with these sort of growing pains in the life of your church, that's the problem of a church that's alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that's not where God wants to leave you. But this is where God is working. So we come to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 12. 
And he gave, that is God, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said before, Paul's first concern is unity. But as he begins to elaborate in Ephesians chapter 4, he answers the question as to how this unity is achieved. It's achieved in the first place understanding what our work is as Christians. So coming into Christ, this unity is accomplished by our faith in Jesus Christ, and then it's accomplished by the growing up in our faith, which is manifested in the work of the church. And the growth that he talks about and why he goes to links to say how important it is, is because this growth is so important because it's what God has called us to do. And what God has called us to do is to, to do the work of the ministry in order that we might continue to grow up. Do you see? It's cyclical. So we grow in order to work. And the work that he's called us to do that he talks about here, mainly it seems restricted to those who are, uh, who are ordained, but the work of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, much more than offices, but actually gifts that God has given the church, he says are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, meaning that it's the pastor's job to open the word of God to his people and build them up in the faith so that they might be equipped to do the work of ministry. And this is very difficult in our tradition because most people assume that the work of ministry is done by ordained people. That's what you people do that are ordained who serve on our pastoral staff. And so it's no wonder when someone really begins to grow in the faith and they want to work because that's what happens with children. Have you ever met a child who says, I don't want to grow up? Uh, this world and especially the church, is no place for Peter Pan Christians. But as you grow up, you want to grow up. You look forward to being able to drive. You look forward to being able to go off to school. You look forward to making your way on your own. And in the same way, Christians look forward to doing the work of the ministry in and of themselves. But if you grow up in a context in which the pastor does everything... Typically, when someone begins to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, they think that the only way that they can do the work of ministry is to be ordained, which Paul says here is a complete falsehood. 
Well, how do you grow up in the Lord? Well, turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. And we are going to look at verse 41 and following. This is page 911 if you have one of our leather-bound Bibles. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is a result of Peter's sermon. And they, those who had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came among every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So 3,000 people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of Peter's sermon there in the book of Acts. But then what? Do they just stop and say, well, that's enough. I've had this life-changing experience in Jesus, and now I'm just going to go on my way. Well, no, it's clear that their lives were radically changed. So in the first instance, the Holy Spirit of God came in and took up residence in their heart so that they began to desire to grow up in the faith and therefore devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They gave themselves over to Bible reading. They gave themselves over to spending time with Christians. They gave themselves to spending time in prayer. That's how they grew up. They didn't think that it would just happen. And that's a great mistake, and that's a mistake of many lazy Christians to say, well, if I'm going to grow, then God's Spirit is just going to have to do it. Now, there is a sense, of course, that it is all God's Spirit, but the means by which God has chosen to grow His people are His Word, sacraments, the fellowship of His church, and prayer. It would be a poor relationship if you went out and met the woman or man of your dreams, and after that first initial date where you said, this is the one, never spoke to them ever again never corresponded with them, never took an interest in getting to know them. That would be no relationship at all, and the relationship that you had hoped for would never be realized. Now, I know that I've said many a time, especially in preaching evangelistic sermons, that there's a great difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. This past week, uh, we experienced a great loss in the church militant, uh, J.I. Packer, who's gone to be a member of the church triumphant. And uh, I met him a couple times. I corresponded with him a little bit. I certainly have read his books. But I really can't say that I knew Jim Packer. I knew an awful lot about him. I knew what was in his heart based on his writings, what he was passionate about. And yet, I can't say that I really knew him. And there's a great truth about that. And yet, for some Christians, 
You can know Jesus, but not know anything about him. Because if you really want to get to know someone, you will learn about them. You'll get behind the person. You'll, you'll wonder, who is this Jesus? And you'll begin to open up the Word, especially the Gospels, and begin to look and explore, who is this Jesus Christ that I've come into relationship with? And the more time you spend in God's Word, the more you know about Jesus, which in turn means the more you know Him. People who don't spend time in God's Word will never know about the Lord Jesus and therefore never truly know him. And this is what Paul is encouraging in in Ephesians chapter 4. Until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, which means a full-grown person. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're moving toward. And even to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'll be honest, I have no idea what that means. And yet it is a grand phrase. I think that it means that that day when we will finally obtain the fullness of Christ, when we'll be completely in his stature and be made like unto him, on that day in which he returns or calls us home. And yet we are on that journey toward mature manhood or womanhood. And notice Paul says, so that we may no longer be children, What I said earlier on, you'll get beyond the bickering, the selfishness, the zeal marked with foolishness, which I see amongst many people. There's a particular friend I have who would claim that he's been a Christian for most of his life, and he's zealous for the Lord, but he's a foolish man. And I'm constantly encouraging him, I understand that you read that in this book, but I want you to read the Bible. Read what the Bible has to say about this rather than relying on other people. But for some reason, this brother, who is certainly a Christian, won't grow up. And though his zeal is to be applauded, his foolishness ought not to be tolerated. Because what's happening to him and so many others when you remain a child is you're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children are easily fooled. When we were in Beaufort just this past month, I told my children that there was a house over on St. Helena Island And if you were able to ring and run the doorbell and not be caught, the man who owned the house would give you $1,000. Now that is ludicrous, of course. And my wife, Lauren, rightly put her elbows in my ribs and said, I'm not exactly sure teaching our children how to ring and run is uh, is the best parenting strategy. Uh, But you should have seen the look on their face go from excitement Uh, to pure disappointment when I pulled up to the house and it was a double-wide trailer set up on pillars about 20 feet up in the air with no front staircase, but there was the door. And I said, well, have at it. Well, they were easily duped, but when they actually were able to see the thing for what it is and realize it was foolish, up until that point, they thought it was a great idea and they were all going to have $1,000 in their pockets. But they grew up when they saw the truth of the matter. And in the same way, if you're a child, 
you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But now notice what Paul says in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, if you look at verse 14 and contrast them, you'll see that Paul doesn't do what you probably assume he's going to do. So if the mark of a child in the Christian faith is to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, you would assume that Paul is going to say in verse 15, the mark of the mature believer is to not be tossed to and fro and to not be led into false doctrine. But no, although that may be assumed, Paul says that the mark of the mature believer is to speak the truth in love and to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So the opposite is not being led into error or to keep from being led into error, but the opposite is actually to lead others in the truth. That's what Paul says here. The mark of the mature believer is to lead others into the truth of God's word. You begin to help others see the truth of God. Now, I don't think that Paul necessarily... Now, when he talks about speaking the truth in love, he's not talking about telling fibs. Uh, but what he's talking about is, is a teaching component. But I don't think that he's also talking about it in the sense of you go into your workplace if you're an accountant or a teacher and, and begin to speak the truth in love and say, now I'm going to teach you the truth about Christianity. You're going to get kicked out immediately, and nobody wants to hear any uh, of that. And yet in the context of the church, which is what Paul is talking about here, he is saying that the mark of the mature believer and the expectation of the mature believer is to speak the truth in love to others. You help others understand. And this is the loving thing to do. And that's not always what people assume. I had someone once come to me and say, uh, there's somebody who's been coming to our Bible study and they've been teaching all kinds of erroneous doctrines and they're monopolizing the time and they're, they're uh, so loud and uh, so uh, intentional about what they want to say that no one else can get a word in edgewise. What should we do? And I told them, kick them out. I think that my friend assumed that I was going to say, well, you just have to love them. But in the context of the church, that's not what you do. Uh, they're nothing more than a cuckoo who has come into the nest. And they've taken over. And if you have immature believers in that Bible study, they're going to lead them astray. Now, it may be that you can go to this person and say, you're welcome to come to our Bible study, but you're not allowed to speak anymore unless you're actually reading the scriptures and making arguments based on that. You're even welcome to ask questions at the end, but we can't have you dominating this because that's the most loving thing to do. I and mean, that's true of any classroom. If a teacher has one child 
who was acting out? What if the teacher were to align the entire class to the misbehavior of this one child? The whole class would suffer. And in the same way in the life of the church, if you have someone who's uh, acting out, uh, who is teaching false doctrine, uh, well, then they need to be uh, pulled out of the equation. Uh, they need to be either sent off or, or corrected, which is really what we're aiming to do, because we want to see them walking in the truth. Uh, but we shouldn't expect that their words are going to fall on deaf ears because even for believers, especially if they're childlike believers, they're going to readily take hold of anything that sounds good for the $1,000 ring-and-run competition on St. Helena Island, South Carolina. The most loving thing that you can do is to say, that's not right. Because we're talking about things eternal. I'm going to look at Acts. You don't have to turn there because I want to... um, um, You don't have to turn there because I'm going to read it for you. But I want to read for you Paul's farewell words to the church in Ephesus. This is Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 29. Well, let me start with verse 28. That's verse 27. I keep backing up. Paul says this to the church in Ephesus as he's making his way to Jerusalem. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul knew that this would happen, and now he's writing about it. There are those who are going to come in amongst you who are wolves who simply want to devour you and are going to peddle false teaching. Now, who does the wolf want to eat? The wolf wants to eat the plump, juicy little lamb. The young ones. And in the same way, the spiritual wolves want to come in and they make their target the immature believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we're believers, and these are our brothers and sisters, we wouldn't say, well, he's just a wolf. Let him gnaw at the lamb a little bit. The lamb will completely forget about it after a while. The wolf will only do a little bit of damage and then go away. Would we not be willing to do that much more for our Christian brothers and sisters that, would, that any of us would do to protect the life of a lamb? But so often we shrug our shoulders and say it doesn't matter. And I know that many of you don't like it when I talk about our denominational issues, but I'm only doing what Paul is admonishing us to do, that when there's false teaching and false error, you have to point it out. 
and say, that sounds all well and good, but that doesn't align with what the Bible says. And I'm simply doing what Paul calls the elders of the church to do to shepherd the flock of sheep that God has given them. And within that flock, you've got tasty little lambs that are going to get sucked in. And I've heard it before. We have had people preach in this pulpit in which I about had to come apart listening to what I was hearing. And then afterward, I've heard people in our congregation say, well, you know, that really wasn't that bad, or that was really lovely, or, oh, that was such a meaningful thing that this person said. Lambs. Lambs. Led away by a wolf. Paul says, no. Your job as a mature believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to speak the truth in love for the sake of the lambs, for the sake of the flock. We're not attacking the individual who was in the pulpit. In fact, we're we're not really attacking the wolf at all. We're attacking the content of their teaching. And that's very difficult to do, and you're going to have to operate some discernment as to whether or not they themselves have been led astray or whether they indeed have appropriated this false teaching and are intent upon peddling it. And sometimes it takes a long while to discern that. And in fact, what you kind of have to do is to get to know the wolf. But you know, if you're a shepherd, and not just an ordained person, but if you're growing up into the maturity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you get to know the ways of the wolf, especially the wolves who circle your own flock. You begin to recognize them. You know their patterns of behavior. You know what they're going to do. You know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to have to be. And that's just being a good shepherd. Not that you're necessarily concerned with the wolf, but you're concerned about the flock and the work that the wolf is going to do. And so if you're not maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be blown about and you're not going to be able to do the work of the ministry. You're not going to be able to do that which God has called you to do. How do you grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course, first you turn to faith in him and his spirit begins to indwell in you. And he does, by a supernatural power, begin to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. But he also gives us means of grace, the reading of our Bibles, God's word, the sacraments of the church, the fellowship of the church, and the prayers. Those components are the building blocks which God uses to grow his people. Do you simply know about the Lord Jesus or do you know him? Or are you someone who knows him but you don't know anything about him and you've been an infant even for decades? Now I want to stop here and issue a word of grace and comfort for those of you who say, I don't feel like I'm growing at all. Uh, I struggle as a Christian, which, as I've said a thousand times before, if you're struggling and are not happy with where you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a mark of the Spirit's dwelling within you. That's a a mark of, of, of a regenerate Christian who wants to grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to do something about it. But here's what I'd say. It's very hard for you as an individual to see your own growth. In fact, you you won't be able to see it. 
I mean, isn't that true? I, I had an Aunt Florence who lived in Gastonia, North Carolina. And Aunt Florence, every year I'd see her at a family reunion, and she'd say to me, Andrew, how you've grown. Well, I thought she was crazy. And she said it every year, and I thought, golly, she, she's just saying that to say that. But actually, she was able to see the growth that I wasn't able to see. And all of y'all are just like me. You look in the mirror, and you think, this is how I looked in college. Everybody else looks really old, but I look amazing. Or the picture that you took five years ago when you think, oh, I look terrible. And now you look at it and say, I'd do anything to look like that again. You, do, you need an outside, you need a picture, you need an Aunt Florence, you need something to help you understand how you have, in fact, grown. Because if it's left up to you, you're not going to feel like you've grown at all. But the promise of God is that if you're in a relationship with him and his spirit dwells within you, and you're in God's word, if you're fellowshipping with this church, if you're going to God in prayer, as James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Brothers and sisters, you will grow in maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you will be able to speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head, into the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, is equipped. And each part will begin to work properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, he's come full circle. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about the love that is shared amongst Christians. And it all happens when we grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, next week, we're going to pick up with verse 17. And I'd welcome any questions, comments, concerns, especially if you're someone who says, Andrew, I've not been able to get off of first base. Call me. I'd love to talk to you about how we can grow up in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that it's truth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us grow up into the full stature of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would not be left as children blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine to be led astray by human cunning, but Lord, rather that we would speak the truth in love and Lord, that we would all get to the place where we understand our great need to grow up in you and to take care of one another as the body of Christ, even to guard the wolves and to feed the lambs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.